This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder, and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. I am out in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, uh, right here uh, in a beautiful spot on the river, uh, home of Casey Brewing and Blending, and my guest on the podcast today is Troy Casey. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming up here. It's a nice scenic drive uh, from the Front Range of Colorado, maybe a little longer today than I was planning on, but uh, uh, but but what a, what a gorgeous drive and what a gorgeous state. I uh, can't wait to talk to you about open fermentation. Uh, uh, mixed fermentation, uh, blending sour beers, uh, bl- using fruit, which is something that you know, Troy's really focused on. Uh, I think eventually we'll start talking about his next foray into uh, to more clean beers, uh, brew on his own brew house. Uh, but before we get into that conversation, uh, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers sets the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. They think outside the box, whether it's a simple relocation of the utility connections for a complex buildup or ground-level design and engineering, G&D is ready to meet the challenge. Contact G&D Chillers today at 1-800-555-0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Mention this podcast and re, uh, receive up to $1,000 worth of glycol with the purchase of any new G&D chiller. Also, Tavor makes it possible to access and discover the highest-rated craft beers from all over the world through their free mobile app. Twice a day, you get access to a new limited beer from an independent craft brewer, Imagine sipping a vanilla ice cream stout from Wild Leap Brewing in Georgia or Juicy Bits IPA from Weldworks in Colorado. Join the independent beer community today and get $10 in beer money with code BREWING. Troy. Yes. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about brewing and let's talk about uh, uh, how you got involved in this whole crazy world. There's a bit of a, a lineage in your family that uh, and you follow uh, uh, your dad who uh, made quite a mark in the world of brewing. Talk to me about uh, how you uh, decided to continue in that, uh, how you got exposed to it, and uh, what uh, sparked your excitement, what gets you excited, and why you decided to build a business around it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, my dad's been in the brewing industry my whole life. Uh, retired about five years ago from Coors. Um, so when I was going to school to doing a undergrad in chemistry, um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it. And, uh, my dad helped me get a job as a tour guide at Coors when I was 20. And from there I realized that I could use my science degree to, uh, to become a brewer. And so from there I, um, got a job getting $8 an hour in beer, uh, from the local brewery. I got some internships at Coors. I went to university of California at Davis to get my master's in food science and worked for Anheuser-Busch for a few years while I was out there. Uh, Upon graduating uh, UC Davis, I went uh, and worked at Coors for about five years uh, in the pilot brewery, uh, which became AC Golden. So we got to work on a lot of small batch um, brewing anything from tech, like German lagers to barrel aged stouts, and then eventually a little bit of sour beer. So that's kind of what got me excited about uh, starting KC Brewing and Blending. Uh, just over five years ago was the uh, mixed culture um, sour stuff. Most kids want to kind of you know depart from uh, what their parents are doing. Uh, it must have been uh, interesting. Uh, and, and of course, in the early years, as you launched a brewery, your dad and your mom were out here helping out, and it really was a, a kind of family affair. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we're what we're doing up here couldn't be any further from what my dad retired doing was trying to make sure American light lager was brewed 
and to and well not brewed necessarily but tasted the same no matter right, where right. it was was made and so to change the brewing process to make that happen for each facility so to go from for him to, on one spectrum to do that for us doing uh um uh mixed culture stuff is couldn't be any further from that so uh, why the focus on mixed culture what was it about this uh and this style of brewing with uh, wild and sour and funky beer that uh that made you so excited and then also uh encouraged you to actually build a business around it sure yeah it was uh it's the magic of it and so you can take the same beer and you can or the same word the same beer put it in a barrel and uh to the barrels could look look the same to you but what can result is two separate different things it's completely different things so um really just the magic of the this process um is what keeps it fun and interesting so when i was at coors we were making any if it was making coors light or making um a german lager you know i i kind of say it's like brewing by numbers um, so you're really just looking at numbers to analytical data to figure out what you want to do next. And so the, the romance and the, the, the magic of these mixed culture beers, tasting different barrels, blending them together to get something that's greater than the sum of its parts. Um, that's really what, uh, what drew me to doing this. And, um, back five years ago, uh, there weren't too many people doing it, especially in Colorado. We had my good friend Chad doing it at Crooked Stave. But besides that, I saw, um, room for for what we wanted to do and start something small out here in the western slope and here we are so that magic is kind of a double-edged sword i mean it's it's glorious when it works out and it's uh, pretty awful when it doesn't um early on you know you you uh, brewed beer and, and you started without actually without a brew house you were brewing wort at other places bringing it in here fermenting uh, uh conditioning blending everything here at your own facility um, but there had to be uh, some really nervous times there, especially as you're getting started uh, tasting some stuff, wondering if, the, if this is going to work out and uh, how that, how it was going to go. I mean, uh, how do you, when did you know that uh, it was going to make sense and that people were going to actually gonna like this? Oh man, I don't know. Um, we yeah, it was it was unbelievable when we started brewing in uh, April 2014. We started doing basically what became Saison. So it was our, uh, we did three Saison batches and one Oak Theory batch. And the Saison batches, I'd only test brewed at Coors maybe once and it turned out okay. And, and what, we, what we made here turned out light years um, better than that. And that first batch of Saison was only like a six week beer fermented and aged in Oak. Wow. And uh, thank God, because we needed the cash flow. And uh, um, so it, uh, and then we did blends after that with, then we did different fruits. And I remember, uh, so when I knew, when we had Saison, when I tasted it, when we bottled the first batch, I think it was like May 30th. Um, I was, I knew we were going to make something and I was hoping it would carb. So, so there's worry along the way. So I knew the barrels tasted good. Um, we, uh, and then I hoped they would carb. And, and I remember we didn't have our cork and cager didn't come in and so we hand we hand corked a few of them but no cage and then we crowned the rest of them but a couple days later i was like we gotta we gotta uh crown these so they're all crowned so i popped the corks and they had some carbonation and then i and then i capped them again and so thank god uh they carbonated and um and then we were off to the races and then we tried oak theory a few months later and I remember tasting that with Chad for one of the first times. I think we probably tasted that uh, around July. Um, and it had acidity. It was clean. It was, it was fruity and bright. And so I, was, I was remember thinking like to myself, oh, thank God that tastes good too. So, yeah. But then along the way, there's been plenty of, uh, plenty of mistakes that have happened, but we, we make it through. Talk to me about how you've built a culture. You know, I mean, that's for, for all mixed culture breweries, 
you know, the nature of that culture, uh, you know, kind of defines the flavor of a brewery. And so, you know, building that up and, uh, you know, building the, the kind of, you know, microbes, bacteria, uh, you know, wild yeasts, et cetera, that are going to contribute to that um, can be a kind of dicey proposition. Not all of them taste great. Um, how did you go about building that house culture for, for Casey? And, you know, over the last few years as it's developed, uh, what have you done to try to keep it on, you know, on track and from straying off of that, the kind of flavor profiles that you really enjoy? So now we go back to, we go back to lab uh, based pitches to keep it consistent. So we, um, now that we have our own brew house, we brew um, once or twice a week and we can we could keep that yeast going as long as we needed to especially in the summer when we're brewing every week let's just talk about the winter maybe we brew eight weeks in a row we'll take four weeks off and then start brewing again so we would use that same yeast pitch of uh of different uh yeast and bacteria for those eight weeks and then when we're done with that last brew we'll dump that yeast and then reorder when we're going to start brewing again so is this something that you've then had banked at a yeast bank and then they prop up your your stuff and then ship it to you or is this something where you're using com- kind of a commercial based pitch commercial based pitch really yeah okay. for sure that we when we first started we weren't doing that it uh we ha- i did have um something that i liked but there was too much um that we maintain that i maintained and we we grew up but um over time i i didn't care for that and so yeah. we started uh, experimenting with um, different lab stuff so that we could keep it consistent. Um, in the sense, not consistent in the sense that it's always making the same flavors, but consistent in the sense that we can get the same acidity, which I think is the most important in when you're making blending sour beers and, um, the fruity aspects of it. So, um, yeah, it's a mixture of different Saison yeast, uh, Saccharomyces, Britannomyces, lactic acid bacteria that we get from multiple labs and so kind of have our own recipe. So when I was at Coors... Uh, oh, we, so you're buying multiple commercial pitches and blending those? Yeah, so it's not all from one supplier, it's from oh, different places. Okay. And okay. Uh, it's just trial and error. Now yeah, that we have yeah, yeah. a seven-barrel brew house, we can right. do a lot more of that kind of stuff. Well, that makes it a little easier to not have to consistently, you know, to, to keep it from straying and uh, and not getting too crazy or going off some deep end. Yeah, turning acetic else. or something like that, for sure. Sure, sure. Um, when you uh, build a, a recipe, you know, for these bugs to work on, uh, what are some of your thoughts about how, uh, you know, building that perfect kind of mixed, uh, uh, fermentation Saison farmhouse kind of base, uh, you know, so that the, all of these fun bugs have something to chew on. Yeah, absolutely. We use a mixture of both raw and malted, um, so raw and malted barley and wheat. So it's just a little bit of raw wheat, raw barley, and then the majority of it's obviously malted wheat excuse me, malted barley and, uh, I don't know, 20% malted wheat. So it's a super simple base recipe. We get all that from Colorado. Um, we're using just a, a little bit of hops for a bittering addition for like a beer like Saison. Uh, our funky blender is a fun one in my opinion, because we do a late hopping with it with Colorado Cascade. So we mm. do a whirlpool hop basically, um, which, uh, contributes obviously a little bit of bitterness. So that beer tends to be less acidic, I think, than uh, Saison. And then those, uh, oils and uh, fruiting flavors that we're getting from that late hop um, are resulting in some really cool esters uh, that is really, really fun to blend with. You know, how does that kind of hopping vary between uh, some of the different beers that you make? Yeah, so Saison is just a bittering hop. Uh, East Bank has a late hop as well. 
Um, Funky Blender has a late hop. We've been experimenting with different hops for that late hop too. Yeah. Uh, so not just Colorado hops to see what that does to the different beers. Um, and late late hops is in what like whirlpool hop. Whirlpool hops. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and then well, how, you know, is there kind of a, a goal for uh, weight? You know, pounds per uh, or ounces per uh, per barrel that you're shooting for on those? Or yeah, it's I would say. And I'm, I'm not. I haven't brewed in a while, so that, I'm legitimately trying to remember. I'm not trying to be de- deceptive. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it's. Uh, so I'd say it's. It's usually we're like, talking about Belgian style beers. Yeah, so you can, exactly. You can, you can so, be a little Belgian. Yes, 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 yes. I'll still uh, keep asking. No, no, no. I would say I, I want to say six ounces. Okay. Uh, per barrel. Okay. Let's just go with that, and, and that's the, that's a fact. That sounds, <laughs> sounds official. Yeah. I hope Eric's nodding his head when he's listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that is correct, Roy. Okay. Thank you. So, so what do you think? Uh, from a sensory perspective those kinds of hops do and how do the those hops uh you know affect the development of the culture uh, as it ferments so we get like i said we get a little bit more we get a little bit more bitterness in the resulting wort which controls acidity so we end up with some beers that if we're tasting through barrels we have to be really selective about what barrels we taste first because if we try a saison barrel first that has um you know in my opinion strong acidity to it then you taste funky blender you could be like, there's no acid in this beer. But if you tasted that one first, you would say like, oh, this has got a perfect amount of acid. This would be really well with like apricots, for example, that yeah. have such high levels of uh, acidity. So um, so we get we get less acidity in the beer, which can, in my opinion, age longer. We get different um, fruity esters that uh, um, result in some really cool flavors by themselves. And then when you put that on fruit, it's just unbelievable what you can, um, what you can get. Like we were just tasting uh, two different beers yesterday that had the same rate of, uh, sweet cherries and they were completely different beers. One was, um, a totally different, uh, it was an amber sour, an amber farmhouse ale basically. So just a bittering addition, pretty much Saison with a little bit of amber malt. And then we were tasting with funky blender, completely different beers. Just because of esters coming off of the different hops additions. Yeah. And the different acidity and yeah. the different, uh, esters and all those compounds that I've long since forgotten since UC Davis. So Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's. I'd love to talk to you about uh, uh, some acidity levels in your beer, but uh, before we do that, uh, with over 200 years of combined experience in the craft beverage industry, Craft Malt Group's dedicated sales and support staff understand the importance of excellent ingredients, product knowledge, and expertise in making great beer. Country Malt Group's mission is to provide the products and services you need while making the process of ordering, ordering ingredients easy. The focus is to inspire your best craft. Order online at shop.countrymalt.com. Malt.com. Also, balancing barley and hops is your expertise, and for Clarion Lubricants, food-grade lubricants is theirs. The team at Clarion knows that when it comes to making great beer, you're the expert, and when it comes to supplying food-grade lubricants backed by service-oriented professionals, they're the experts. Clarion work with you to create an efficient lubrication system that helps protect your brewery. To speak with an expert, dial 1-855-MY-CLARION, 855-692-5274, or visit clarionlubricants.com. Clarion Lubricants, the expert that experts trust. So let's talk a little bit about acidity levels. Do you all have like a, a target uh, titratable or total acidity or uh, pH levels that you're kind of shooting for in these beers? Do you measure that uh, in order to see how you're you're going to spec? Or uh, you're, you're laughing? So uh, <laughs> we don't. No, it's all it's all based on it's all based on so uh, technical. Choice. Yeah, it so, is. No, so it is. Exacting. And so I have I've been teaching Eric for years and and uh, about what we're looking for from tasting it and um, and. Uh, 
and that's how it is. You pass it on. Um, you could do it, you know, that way. You could. I know there's some big, really good uh, brewers and blenders in the states that they do it based on that. They're basically blending by numbers. That's the kind of thing I wanted to get away from when, like, what we were talking about. Yeah. Um, and so t- for me, it's just it's just pallets. You know, you could do all that for pretty cheap, I'm sure. But uh, I mean, for us, it's just that's what makes it fun. I think is you're is you're you're not trying to replicate something that you've done before or last year. The consumers are looking for those differences, um, and oftentimes we're trying uh, we're trying to replicate um, some of our more successful popular blends, um, which usually uh, we found have less acidity compared to what um, sometimes what we were, we were making. So in the last year or so, we've been trying to um, decrease acidity. Um, to get a balance that some of our customers are looking for. That seems like a general trend overall, pushing uh, you know, kind of mixed fermentation and uh, sour beers into that kind of lighter lighter realm in terms of uh, body and color as well as uh, in on the uh, acidity side. Uh, why do you think the market has kind of you know shifted in that direction? I mean, there was a time, I don't know, I, I, you know, I guess I have my thoughts about it, but, you know, as with everything in craft beer, in the early days of, of craft brewers understanding they could use hops, it became how many fucking hops can yeah. we put in a beer and can we make it like a billion IBUs to just like blow the, you know, you know the uh, tongues off of people, you know, and there, I guess within that arc, there always seems to be that, that, that focus on intensity and like, I'm tough enough that I can drink this and that differentiates me from everybody else. And I'm so much cooler because I drink craft beer that way. Um, but then as things settle in, you realize, you know what, I kind of like the flavor of these things rather than the pain. Um, you know, and, and it seems like we've kind of run that same arc with, uh, acidity and sour beer. It started with, uh, how much, uh, acidity can you withstand to prove that you're capable of drinking this beer? And now we're starting to get to this point where you know we understand balance and nuance and, and flavor, um, you know. And so, is that just a you know maturation of the customer, uh, or is it is it brewers driving that bus and saying, "My God, we just you know want a different kind of product," or or you know what is it that has kind of led the whole world of uh, sour uh, beer in this direction? I don't know if it's as I, I don't know if I have as much hope for for that as it sounds like you do, and so. Um, but I'm sure you, you probably taste more than I do of, of, of uh, different sour beers now. But um, I think it's, it all comes down to drinkability. It doesn't matter if it's a barrel-aged stout, if it's a light lager, if it's a, if it's a sour beer. There's got to be a certain amount that the consumer is expecting to drink. And if they can't drink what they want to, I mean, that's a problem. No matter how you look at it, no matter what the brand is, right? I mean, even From if, both a consumer and a business perspective. Sure, like, yeah. you know, if they can only drink a little bit of your beer, then that's less of your beer they're going to buy, right? Yeah. And then if, like, even, if, even if you look at it from a barrel-aged stout standpoint, if it's not sweet enough, that's too drinkable, if you will, and they could probably drink too much of it, that might be a problem. I don't know if that's a problem. I just made that up. But um, <laughs> so from a sour standpoint, which I know obviously a little bit more about than barrel-aged stouts, is, uh, is the, it's the drinkability. You want, I mean, yeah. we sell our beers in 750 bottles. Thankfully, we haven't. Um, for they've been from the market hasn't You're demanded. Some of the few. You yeah, can still get sure. away with that. Absolutely. Right? And I think that it comes down to the drinkability aspect of it. You could drink a bottle of this with, with two people and and not be um full, if you will, from the acidity of it, overwhelmed by the acidity of it. And so um I think there are still people that are really trying to do that. Those people that are brewing by numbers, they think that they need it to be really, really sour for it to sell. But nowadays, I think the consumer is looking for other aspects of the beer besides just the acid. That's just almost maybe a, a by 
or uh, you know an afterthought compared to everything else that's in the bottle you know i think there's something to like consumption mode on this too and i we also we talk about this with you know brewers that make those barrel aged stouts that you know there are those beers that you're going to drink within the scope of uh, bottle share and a couple ounce sample where you know maybe that acidity or that sweetness or that intensity of uh, of adjunct flavor is the thing that makes it stand out among you know a packed lineup and fatigued palates as people are drinking it um, which but if that's a different consumption mode than you're looking for for your beer where you want you know two people to sit down and enjoy uh, you know some glasses of beer sharing a, b- a bottle of five and a half or six percent beer at the most um, you know and, and you price it in a way where you know it's a little bit you know, a little expensive but sure. not not yeah, yeah, yeah. not inaccessible especially the the, the unfruited versions sure um, you know for folks that might want to just open a bottle for themselves on uh, on a weeknight sure and not get uh, completely plastered um, you know but that consumption mode may you know to some degree affect the way that people uh, you know design these beers yeah i think so like you said um i mean especially if you look at it from a from a beer judging standpoint the judges are just are just tasting sips right not even ounces they're tasting sips of it yeah. and so that's what's pushing um if that's what a brewer is trying to do is that's what would push them to that way um super fruity super acidic super whatever the uh, guideline says um, I love how you just hung beer judges and competitions I'm a judge. I'm on, a the, judge. on the same hook that uh, yeah, beer geeks sharing and bottle shares are. Is on. I'm, a, I'm a judge. I mean, you're right. Yeah. No, it's yeah. it's so, the same kind of thing. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm, gu- I'm guilty of it just as anybody else. Right, it's right. there's no. I mean, it's one of those things you think about a lot if when you're a judge and how could you in- in- change the system? I don't. I don't know how you could. So yeah. it's just one of those things, and the consumer will always win out, right? And so if the consumer is looking for a really acidic beer, then they might not like our beers. But if they're looking for something subtle um, and balanced, we're the ones to go for. I mean, I think wine, you know, uh, faces the same kind of challenges, and these these are things that winemakers will talk about in the same kind of uh, conversations that, uh, you know, the consumers want big and bold, and, yeah. and uh, you know, winemakers for themselves would love something more nuanced and uh, you know, and simple and straightforward, but uh, and expressive. Um, you know, it's it's. I think it's probably a perpetual challenge that we will always, you know, in some way be fighting to some degree, you know, even if, uh, you know, the tides and that kind of general middle ground shifts in some sort of way or another. Sure. Yeah. But it's one of those things like you got to brew what the customer wants. It's all, yeah. you know, you can, you can, uh, oh, I'm terrible with, uh, with expressions, but you know, you can fall on your sword, right. If you're trying to brew what you like, but if nobody wants to buy it, you know, what are you doing? So you got to do it. Thankfully I brew what I like and, um, people like it as well. So we got lucky with that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, you know, we always struggle with that because, you know, there's, there's those two sides thing. There are brewers that only brew what the customers like. And if they're constantly chasing a trend, then they never have an identity and they never have a focus and you never know what that, that brand is really about. Um, and then there are other folks and the Belgians are, you know, fantastic at this where, you know, Cantillon and Dree, you know, people love to forget that those breweries were very close to closing for a little while, um, you know, in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, but sticking to that singular focus has now put them in a position where, you know, being so focused on that uh, builds that kind of customer loyalty and, and uh, excitement and demand. Um, you know, I think that you're right. That best is that mix where what you're making is an expression of you as an artist and craftsman, as well as something that's also tuned into what people actually want to buy from, sure. from you. Yeah. Um, you know, how, how do you balance that? And, uh, you know, what does that process look like for you to, you know, looking at, how, uh, and evaluating what your customers want? Well, let me tell you about my hazy IPAs. Um, <laughs> 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 uh, so no, I mean, you got to do what you got to do, right? Like when we first started, yeah, yeah. we, uh, um, 
we just it was just me we were open right, once a month right. you know you've been up here when we were doing this it got crazy out of control i, I stood in a line up here sure. before for sure yeah and uh and we then we grew a little bit and then we had problems with refermentation in bottles we had problems with barrels so we grew we increased barrels so that we would have more to choose from in case something didn't turn out we increased how much we packaged so that we wouldn't be challenged to release something we weren't super psyched with and then all of a sudden here we are with uh eight employees we're opening up our second tasting room downtown um and the consumer is changing they 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 want to go to a place where they can get more than just sour beers and so for us to open up a place downtown glenwood where we're going to get a lot of tourists as opposed uh, in addition to um some of our fans who know us we wanted to be able to have a little bit of everything so definitely have some sour beers um but it's fun for us also as brewers because these are the styles that we like to make um like to drink like the hazy ipas from our friends they sure. usually come up here and so it's fun and it's been challenging to uh to start to play around with those so um i think you can do you know you can do a little bit of everything and um for us our focus is not changing uh from the barrel aged um, sour beers using local whole ingredients, um, but we we have three seven barrel fermenters, so by no means are we trying to get big with it. I don't think we're even going to offer growler or crowler fills at our um, second location just because I don't know if we'll have enough. So um, it's it, you know it's in, it keeps us engaged. It's not what we're trying to hang our hat on, but we hope that when people are talking about hazy IPAs in Colorado, that we can be on that uh, in on their tongue. <laughs> There's, you know, as a brewer, and, and you mentioned the reason you got into this and, and left Big Beer was so that you could continue focusing on, you know, weird and small stuff and not just brew by numbers. And, and I, you know, I think this kind of speaks to the same thing. You create a different kind of product that's not brewing to numbers, but then you do that for four or five years. And as a, you know, creative person or a restless person, you know, at some point you also want a new challenge. You want to solve some new problems. You want to try some new things. And uh, and so it's certainly natural to, to think about how you move into, you know, different kind of beer uh, uh, styles just to kind of keep it fresh for yourselves and uh, give your, your brewing staff a little bit of room to, to play and have fun too. Absolutely. And Eric has been, uh, Eric Metzger, our production manager, he's really taken the charge on all these um you know, non mixed culture beers. He's been doing great. Um, I kind of just try to find hops that he can use and, um, try to teach him a little bit more about the, um, fermentation side, uh, on a non, you know, non wood fermentation side, a stainless right, steel right. Uh, side from what I remember from when I was working for the big guys, but you know, he's been doing really good. We've got some awesome, uh, beers that we're sitting on. So, um, he's been crushing that. Yeah, you know, it's it's not just you all. You know, the Rare Barrel is putting out sour IPAs. We're playing with that, and they haven't gone whole in, in into it yet. But they're uh, they're definitely moving in that kind of direction. Of course, Crooked Stave has uh, expanded into you know both uh, pilsners and hazy IPAs and barrel aged stouts and everything else, and kind of you know broaden that kind of scope from uh, for the brands they built. So you're not alone in this kind of. You know, wanting to, to move from, from this idea of what Casey is to some bigger idea of what Casey can be. Yeah, you know, I love uh, J. Cole's one of my favorite uh, uh, rappers right now, and he's got uh, a line in one of his recent songs. He says, everything grows, it's destined to change. And so business is just constantly changing. Um, I think back to, especially when I'm really, really stressed out about something with the business, I think back to, you know, the good old days when it was, when it was just me and, and, uh, you know, our, the problem was we had too many people that wanted the beer. And, and I think back like what, if I could go back to that time and do anything different, like what would happen? And in my head, it always gets to where it is now. Right. And so like it, I don't think there's any, I think it's a natural progression. There's really no way in my opinion that we could, um, 
could do anything differently. I mean, everything, every year, rent gets more expensive, raw materials get more expensive, the consumer's changing, you've got people that are leaving the craft beer industry, or drinkers that are leaving the craft beer industry, you got new ones, um, you've got to constantly be telling your story. And so uh, it's just natural. And we've been able to do it in, in a way that um, I'm definitely super proud of and uh, wouldn't change anything we're doing right now. Let's talk a little bit about open fermentation. That's something, uh, you know, part of, part of the, the key to some of the beer you make is uh, you put, uh, you, you do your fermentation in a no pressure open containers, a little bit of gauze over the top to keep the flies out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why do you do it that way? And what have you found in doing that way? Because they're, it's not temperature controlled, is it? You're just uh, kind of running with it? It's not. No, I was just, we just, uh, we just got some new tanks last year and they've got um, uh, fruit fermenters and they've got, uh, temp gauges on them and so we've never had temp gauges before for our fermentations and we, there's one tank back there that's 80 degrees and uh, it's it's very delicious and so I have to I had to remind myself many times like just because you can read it doesn't mean it was any different last year or since day one and just now you can measure it so don't freak out everything's going to be fine so we do open fermentation at the beginning I think we did it because A it might have been cheaper um, than <laughs> sure. getting a stainless tank throw it into some wood wood's the cheapest uh, fermentation vessel there is so. but when I was at Coors one of my favorite styles of beer was German Hefeweizen and um, like the Sandlot they made German Hefeweizen in their uh, I don't know what it is but it was phenomenal and they used a very super authentic yeast strain, an amazing combination of esters and phenols. And we went, I went to Germany with those guys, with, uh, with Bill I and some of the other um, Sandlot guys in 2009 or 10. And we went to some authentic... Bill, uh, Bill, who went on to you know, a few other things and is now at Bierstadt Lagerhouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's okay. And, uh, it's it's all right. And, uh, no vice beer, but okay. And, uh, no, it's amazing. That's my first stop when I go to Denver. Um, but they're all the reason the vice brewers were making amazing beer because they had open fermentation, right? And it's the same with lagers. Some of the best German breweries are using open fermenters for lagers. The idea being there's not, um, you don't, you're not trapping any, uh, there's no pressure in the vessel, right? So if you're fermenting like every other brewer in the world does with a little one and a half, one and a half inch, um, pipe coming out the top, there's pressure in that tank. That pressure is suppressing flavors that are not coming out if it were to be open. So for me, it was always a combo of, um, height to width ratio. So we wanted, um, even height to width ratio or close to, and, we wanted to get the, I thought, I think we get the flavors that way that you can't get any other way. So from day one, um, and we still are using, uh, open fermenters. Um, we, when I remember I was, fig- I was thinking about this when I was at Coors and then I did a trip of the Northwest and we went to Ale Apothecary and they were, they were doing it. And I was, I talked to Paul and I was like, Holy shit, I want to do this. And he showed me all the components and stuff. So it was awesome. And then we did it and I never had uh, any cloth on top of it when we first started because we did it in April, so there were no fruit flies. And then the winter came, and sure enough, fruit flies came, and I was like, oh, hey, Paul, what do you do to, uh, to with the fruit <laughs> flies? He's like, oh, you get this uh, some sort of cloth, and so that's what we use. No, so those guys were the first ones that I ever saw doing it, and I think it just makes flavors you can't replicate any other way. If we were to expand, if we what were What do you to- describe those flavors as? Oh, I have a terrible- uh, vocabulary when it comes to uh, description. Oh, but I love uh, yeah. pushing brewers on this to For kind sure. of articulate from a sensory perspective oh, what yeah. these are in words. <laughs> I just watched the, one of the Psalm movies, so even then I still have a terrible vocabulary. But uh, no, fruity, um, when it's young, super banana. It's, it rem- reminds me of um, uh, uh, 
uh, overripe bananas. I remember when I was a kid, my, we would always make um, banana muffins with my mom when we had bananas that were going to go bad. And that's what it reminds me of when I, when I taste um, the six or seven day old beer before we transfer it to barrels out of that open fermenter. So a lot of um, esters, just really fruity, tropical. Uh, that's as descriptive yeah. as I could be. It's one of those things. Again, it's it's my nose, right? Yeah. So I tell yeah. Eric, I'm like, especially when we're filling a barrel, that's when I can tell if it's a if I'm happy with the beer. The, the CO2 that breaks out when the barrel, um, when you're filling a barrel, when you smell the bunghole. Moving it from the fermenter into the barrel. Yeah, yeah, when you can smell that, it's a combination of really good fermentation profile and also a clean barrel. And so that's what I look for when, um, I, you know, we'll taste the beer, obviously, but at that point, it's so young, it's hard to, to get a gist. But when you're filling a barrel and it has what I, the only way I can describe it is, hey, Eric, come here. This is really good. <laughs> right? I mean, it's yeah. the most authentic or old way of making something work. I mean, my dad tells me stories of in the 70s and 80s, Anheuser-Busch, they would have one brewmaster that would smell 10 different yeast pitches and he would just based on his nose he would say this is the one you propagate and they would always do that hmm. and so it's a really old way of doing it you just know what you know um and so that's why i'll often joke like if you had to lose one sense for me i'd probably lose my sight before i lost my my smell because uh it's just super important especially to, for our business and so um what was your question uh, let's let's flip it around again. Okay. And what is what is a less successful fermentation or a barrel that you're not as excited about? Uh, you know, what does that evoke for you? Ooh, yeah. I mean, acetic would be the first one that's a problem. Yeah. We just would tasted um, a batch today. Uh, so we have a seven barrel brew house now. So that fills around four smaller oak barrels. And the first one we tried from this batch had a big sulfur characteristic to it. Um, and more so not like, not like the uh, farty sulfur, more like the burnt match, like SO2, if yeah. you're trained on it. If you're training, like that's what you sm- like are trained to smell, like a, um, a, a burnt match. And um, so it was the first barrel we tried from that brew. So I'm like, well, it could just be the barrel or it could be the fermentation. Sometime we've had awful sulfur characteristics that come. Um, from the whole batch this one uh, all the other three barrels were great and so it was a combo of uh, must have just been the barrel so we'll dump that beer get rid of that barrel um acetic is a big one especially if you forget about a project that's aging for months and months and months um acetic's a really easy one and then using aged hops is a is one that we Hmm. learn a lot about is is the beer if is the is the character the flavor that you get from the aged hops is that um, pleasant or is that detracting from this beer? And I think that's a big part of when you're making spontaneous, uh, beers, if you're using aged hops and if to my, we can talk about since we've only done a few brews of spontaneous. So if you talk about it from what I think is happening with, um, Belgian Lambic is a lot of the reason the aging for so long to, for a certain extent is to get some of those, uh, let some of those, um, hop characteristics settle out. We're talking about some of the kind of blue cheese cheesiness. What are what are the other hops characters you get from aged hops? Yeah, you can get astringency that can yeah. go away with time. You can get definitely the blue cheese. Um, the woody tanniny kind of character to it. Yeah, you can get, and again, it's one of those things where it's like, Eric, do you, this just be, this, this isn't ready. The acidity is there, The but there's a, it's really weird nose. I remember we did a blackberry cut a few years ago and it was a single punch in and I think it was like 16 or 18 months old. And we would taste it every month because after a year, usually a beer like that is ready. Um, but every month it was just like, not ready yet, not ready yet. And that, that fl- the character faded and uh, it resulted in one of my favorite blends of, uh, of a cut that we've ever done. So um, again, it's just knowing your culture. It's knowing what you're expecting from the flavor, what you're hoping to get to when you're blending and then having the patience to wait 
and and God forbid, dump a barrel if it's not up to your standards. Sure. What is uh, what is your timeline for your farmhouse sales look like in terms of time in your open fermenter before you rack it into barrels? How long it spends into barrels, and, and how you you know how long it takes you, to, you know, typically pull it out, and then how does that differ from say oak theory and your wild ale kind of focus? Sure. Yeah. So. Uh, the farmhouse beers, which would be beers like East Bank, Saison, Funky Blender, and then all the fruited versions of that, those will ferment in those open, upright fermenters for uh, usually a week. Um, so if we usually brew Mondays and Tuesdays, so just about a week, and then we're turning over that fermenter. Is there like a gravity goal that you're looking for before you rack them out, or are you just kind of like, well, let's let it go for a week and taste it? Yeah, pretty much. And we so we'll measure what the gravity is. Yeah. And yeah, if it was at like in the threes, it'd be like, all right, that's a problem if it's a 10 or 11 Play-Doh beer. Um, but we'll measure what it is and then transfer it. You can usually tell the strength of a fermentation on day two, uh, you know, 24 hours into fermentation if it's blown over the fermenter yeah, or not. We, yeah. we overpitch. We try to get, um, we do everything we can to get a really good healthy um, fermentation. That's what creates the flavors that I'm looking for. And after a week, it racks to other 59 gallon barrels or punchins, right? So 132 gallons. And those will age, um, you know, we try to get to the point, we're trying to get to the point where they age to the point where we've kind of forgot about them. We haven't needed them. So we're not, we're at the point where we're tasting them as like, all right, we now, this is like, this beer could have been ready months ago, but now we were psyched, you know, we can taste it. It's got, it's had plenty of time. It's not like we're rushing it out the door. There's definitely been times when we have um, had to turn a tank uh, fermenter over a little bit earlier than we might want, um, pull a barrel, I guess, a little bit more than we might want. Right. It, 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 hopefully, the consumer never saw that, never tasted that. But um, so for we're at the point anywhere from four, probably three to well, four you, months. Your first batch, which was so prized, yeah, six, six, weeks, six right? week beer, yeah. like, uh, uh, and still people are they're seeking that. One. And that, that was a fantastic batch. I, I had a few bottles of it. <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> no, it's crazy. And God, yeah. it was thank God because I don't know what we would have done if it yeah. wasn't right. And so. Um, um, I mean, we were down to uh, hundreds of dollars in the bank account when we opened that July 3rd. It was a, it was a tough time. And uh, so anywhere from three to four months, for, at, at least for those farmhouse beers, yeah. Oak Theory is uh, usually around um, usually around at least 10 or 11 months uh, before we would do anything with it. Well, your farmhouse beers, where do they tend to be when they go into a barrel? You mentioned three would be a three plate. It would be a bad place. Are they, they more dry than that? And then how, you know, what does that time in the barrel uh, do to those beers? Sure. Yeah, they would be in the high twos or low twos, high nines, um, if, if I remember correctly. And uh, so they might have in the summer, they'll have a little bit of acidity okay. at that day seven. Uh, in the winter, definitely no acidity. Um, and that's because we don't have any temperature controlled. So that's just based on the uh, ambient temperature. Uh, and especially as the generate, as the ferment, as the culture gets more healthy, um, third, fourth, fifth generation of fermentation, you're going to see acid quicker. Hmm. Um What's happening? We've got uh, secondary fermentation, right? Obviously, we've got um, everything is, is chewing on those remaining carbohydrates. You're definitely going to see a gravity drop. Um, the beer is going to settle out. The acidity is really fun to watch develop, especially compared to the small barrels versus the big ones. You see a much faster acid development in the smaller barrels, really? obviously. More huh. surface. Is it more or less surface? To, more surface. More surface, yeah. So whatever ratio that is. The bigger the tank, the less oxygen. Yeah. You know exposure sure yeah and so the if so it's you get a much faster um fermentate or flavor development in the smaller barrels versus the bigger ones hmm. and um and so it's always fun to taste the punch-ins especially we usually try to taste the punch-ins first and then taste the smaller barrels again you we like to taste less intensity uh sure. to more intensity so it doesn't wreck your palate so um so yeah so uh 
I don't know what's happening, right? That's the magic, right? Is is why you do it. And when you tr- when you taste the beer, like today we were trying different East Bank barrels, Eric and I, yeah. and it was like, oh my gosh, this beer should not get fruit on it because it is just so good by itself. And all the barrels were really good, but this one was unique in the sense that we've never released a beer like that before. It had this like um, sweet tart acidity. Uh, again, it had this nose that I, I didn't really know how to describe, just kind of t- talking with Eric. I was like, this is really good. He's like, yeah, that's really good. And if you look at, he was, he was reminding me, if you look at my blending book, um, you know, when we're tasting barrels and writing down notes and stuff, I mean, it's, you know, I've got like good, I've got like really good. And I think he told me there was one, like I had a money sign on it. Like it was money, you know, like the expression. Sure. And I totally forgot about that. He, and he reminded me and teased me. I think him and Jack were talking about that. So yeah, it's a, uh, I have a terrible description, but in my head it all works out and here we are. Money in a good way, not money that it's going to make you because no, it's no, still no, mixed no, fermentation no. beer. No, no, yeah. There's still plenty of ways to screw up that barrel, <laughs> and I've done them all. So it was in the sense of this beer is whatever that's, uh, yeah, whatever the expression is. It's yeah. so money. You're so money, you don't even know it, right? Is that it? Something like that. Yeah. Tell me a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's from that, uh, yeah. Swingers. Uh, yes. Ah, yes. Yes. You got it. You got it. As you're tasting these barrels. You, you mentioned, you know, you're, you're thinking about fruit, what fruit, which fruit's going to blend, you know, with this well. Uh, tell me a little bit about that process, and, and then let's use that as a segue to talk about some of your philosophy and approach, uh, you know, to, to fruit. Yeah, absolutely. So we um, usually are blending. We should open one of these. Yeah, fruit let's do it. Let's do, let's do the, let's do, before we get to the fruited ones, let's do, um, this beer is called First Solo. And this is the first beer. This is a, just a generic, you know, I guess I shouldn't say generic, but this is a, this is a farmhouse beer with, that we did to uh, qualify our, our new brew house that we got uh, a year ago. So it's basically a 12 Play-Doh um, beer made with uh, malted wheat, malted barley, a little bit of raw. Actually, I think it was just malted wheat and malted barley. We didn't want to do any raw grains on our first batch just because yeah. we, we wanted to see how the uh, mash ton would work. Um, just a bittering addition and... Uh, then our house culture. So pretty simple. Um, so it's not Saison, it's not Funky Blender, but it was just something that we did that we really liked the, how it came out, so we wanted to uh, bottle it. So this was about a three-month uh, oak uh, beer. Uh, it's not bad. Cheers. Cheers. <clears throat> so, yeah, we're usually blending uh, to the when we're receiving fresh fruit. So, so it's a very seasonal thing then since the harvest period for fresh fruit is uh, is rather limited. Yep, absolutely. And so we are we'll, we'll freeze berries and cherries. So we'll use those in the um, in the winter, but when it comes to summer fruit, uh, like right now in the last couple last month we've got uh, sweet cherries and apricots. So we are blending at this time we're going through tasting all of our barrels to kind of see what the state of the union is, if you will. So what we have that we really like um, and once we know what we really, really like, we can kind of plan on where that's going to go. So, um, we find we get a lot of acidity from not only apricots, but from sweet cherries as well. We've had many, um, batches of sweet cherry beers, not carbonate. Hmm. And the only thing I can think of is, is high acid. Whereas the sour cherries have, um, uh, have had no problem carbonating and, um, you know, it'd be really easy to prove that point if you had a pH meter, <laughs> but we don't. And so we just make really big mistakes until college we figure professors, it out. professors are cringing when they yeah. hear you say yeah. this. Oh, they're definitely listening. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, so we're, so we're taking our, some of our less acidic beers, um, or barrels for those different fruits. Yeah. When it comes to, 
um, peach beers. You know, it's fun to get some. Uh, those are we usually get the freestone. We always get the freestone variety of peaches that are usually tend to be on the sweeter side, less acidity. So getting a more acidic barrel um, goes a long way with that, I think, and to making those work. So um, we'll kind of choose what we're. We'll taste everything over many many days we find that we can't you know if we taste eight barrels like we're just talking sips right but after that your palate you just can't trust your palate right. and especially if you're like, we can't even like we don't even taste funky blender the same days that we're tasting saison anymore it used to just be we'll, we'll taste all farmhouse beers and then oak theory on a different day but now it's we can't i mean we, we do a lot of collaborations with side projects and now even those ones we have to taste on separate days just because the acidity level we get from those which are on the higher side We'll throw off everything else we're tasting, and so um, we'll take. It takes us weeks to. to it's, you think about it; it's just logistically a challenge to, yeah, to taste yeah. that much. Not from a quantity standpoint, just from a palate fatigue. Standpoint. How many barrels can you taste before you just call it and say, "Hey, we're we're blown out too"? I think eight. You know, if we're tasting all <clears throat> really? saison, really? if we're tasting saison, we might, or if we're tasting any one thing and it's all right there, we could push it because um, at that point you're really just tasting for um, for off flavors or. Right. Um, or in acidity levels. And so then when we start to blend for different barrels, so if we're going to do a three or four barrel blend on a tank, then we'll take, check our notes and start to throw a few different things together and see if they taste good um, as a whole before we put it onto fruit. Um, this summer, we've got a few different blends that are fermenting right now on cherries and apricots that have um, different components in the farmhouse in our farmhouse culture. So we've got some beers. We've experimented with our new brew house. We've got some beers with spelt that Eric did a batch with spelt. Um, we've got one that I did with uh, oats that I don't think we've used at all yet because it's not that it's not as good as the spelt one. <laughs> and then uh, we did an amber farmhouse ale. We did um, uh, like uh, so we've done some high gravity saison, which is like the base beer that we use right. for the side project culture. So we've got some of those going that obviously don't have uh, Corey's culture in it. And uh, just to kind of get different you said flavors, Corey, not cores, cores, yeah, Corey from Side Project, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, and so we're blending those things together, and um, and we're getting some. So that's like a fun thing that we've really never got yeah. to do too much before is to blend different um, base beers, blend saison with Funky Blender, blend um, East Bank into something with a little bit of a more high acid beer to get different things, and then see what it does with fruit. So we we've got some unfruited and fruited versions of those styles that uh, that we're going to play around with this summer. So we're excited about that. Let's talk about your fruit sourcing and uh, how you evaluate fruit. Uh, you've, you've gone so far as to, you know, contract with... Uh uh, you know, with some of the growers out here, and you're, you know, we should, I should say, you're in a, a lucky position out here in Glenwood Springs, and that you're about an hour outside of Palisade, uh, Colorado, which is one of the biggest uh, Western Slope fruit growing regions uh, in the state. Uh, certainly, one of the biggest fruit growing regions in the entire Mountain West. Um, and so you have a lot of these locally grown fruits that are and berries and cherries that are available to you as a result of this. Um, as part of that, you've you've stayed pretty focused on how you use fruit, using that from local growers. Um, you know, even to the extent of you know contracting in order to get growers to put plants in the ground so you'll have specific varieties. Talk to me a little bit about your thought around that. How you've settled on some of. You know, the varieties that you use, select those over others, um, and how you find some, you know, the different flavors that some of these different varieties of, say, apricots or nectarines or, or blackberries or cherries, you know, somehow those different elements, uh, you know, from the from the same fruits uh, contribute in different ways to your beers. Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a that's a big question. That's like ten questions. Yeah, right there. I can I can I can ramble so we can make this happen. Uh, so. 
I think that was my biggest point of differentiation when we started um, was using was the, the focus on local. I think that was something that had was only starting to gain traction. Maybe I'm just you know have selective memory and think that that was that special at the time. I don't know, but uh, but that's what we wanted to do. We were really small. We started on a tiny budget. And uh, we wanted to focus on using Colorado ingredients and because that's what the Belgians started, right? Farmhouse brewing was you made beer with what you grew, sure. with what your neighbors grew. Um, you traded, yeast cultures, all that. So that was what we started with and what we still mostly do today. Um, so we started by just, uh, I, we were making fruit beers when I was at Coors. So we had some connections um, with fruit growers. We've... Um, we, I don't think we use anybody that we were using it when I was at Coors anymore. Um, but we found different ones. We found a lot of smaller growers um, that that grow the really boutique organic uh, stuff that we're that we're looking for. So it's it's basically just meeting growers. We got we've when we used to start by going to farmers markets, seeing talking to the growers there, finding out what they grow. Um, to the point of asking people, hey, can we buy you a thousand uh, raspberry plants to, to plant for us? So we'll put that money up front if and when you get a crop, because it's not always guaranteed. If and when you get a crop, um, we'll you know take you know ten percent off our orders until that's it's basically a debt free or an interest free loan to, yeah. to get the fruit that we're looking for. And yeah, I mean we use almost every fruit we can find in Colorado. We've tried. And there's only a handful that we haven't, and so um, and we'll get there. But uh, yeah, we look for, we just look for quality, right? We talk with growers. They're like, when do you want the fruit? And I'm like, you tell me. So when, when you want to pick it, when can you pick it? I'm not in a rush. I care about quality. And if you have to deliver on a Sunday morning at 7 a.m. on your way to church on the front range, I will meet you at the brewery, which we've done many times. And so, um, and so I don't have to, so we don't have to go pick it up because at that time it was just me. So we look for quality. Um, we pay a lot for our fruit compared to what you could get. Uh, even in Colorado, let alone at Whole Foods. So, I mean, we often are buying organic, and that's not necessarily out of desire. It's out of quality. The people who are growing it really care about their yeah, they're growing organic. Yeah. They obviously really care, and that, that costs a premium. Um, and then the, we, when you get you know, whatever fruit you're, we're getting, it's, uh, it's a matter of when do you process it. That's the biggest part for us. So um, waiting to process it when it's at its peak ripeness to go on and – that happens at the most inconvenient times. So I remember last year we got some nectarines, I think, and it was just me on a Friday, which was, which was rare at that last year. And, oh no, it was me and, uh, and Eric, um, a local, uh, different Eric. And we were finishing up. It was probably three o'clock. We were like, both of us, I'm sure we're like, all right, good. It's Friday. We can go. And I looked at these nectarines and they were starting to turn. And we had already lost probably 10% of the 700 or 800 pounds. And, Luckily, we had a tank that had beer waiting to go, and so we put, and it was only a two-barrel blend. I don't remember why, but it was a two-barrel blend, and we usually put three barrels in um, one of our seven-barrel bright tanks for fruiting, and we, or no, I think it was an empty tank. Yep, it was an empty, I sound like an old person rambling about these stories, but, um, so it was an empty tank, and we, so we saw these nectarines, and we got about 700 pounds, 800 pounds. We, we knocked them out late at night, then then we had to rack beer onto those. Um, and we could only, we had so much of those that it wasn't the plan for that to go in that base beer. This, this beer was nectarine, bourbon, nec- bourbon, East bank, nectarine preserves, uh, that we released last year. And it was right. You had to do it. Otherwise we would have lost all that fruit. So, um, so, you know, the, mon- the, the cost of that fruit is one thing, but the, 
the the beer that you had those the fruit the growers we work with are so small the window of opportunity is is next to nothing so like this year we ordered a day or two days yeah yeah this year we did ten thousand pounds of apricots from one grower in the western slope and i was expecting half of it in one week and then half the next week and so that would give us enough time to process the first half and then process the second half the next week and they delivered and then the, the first half and then the next day they said all right your second half is ready <laughs> and so and we're going to wait to deliver we're going to de- or no they didn't deliver they delivered all at once so they were going to deliver the first day and they said well we're picking your second half right now and we can have it all for you tomorrow will that work you'll save five hundred dollars on shipping and i was like you got it <laughs> and so um so that's what we did and we got uh, ten thousand pounds and it took us and it, it it ripened the first or no it ripened the second day of our uh, fifth year anniversary this year. So if you were here for our, I think we had five days of our anniversary this year. And so we were processing apricots, um, every day there at 7am processing, um, whatever we could, you basically have to go through every single box to pull the ripe ones. And then the next day you do the same thing, find the ripe ones next day, same thing. And so it's, uh, I mean, it's, they say labor of love and I mean, that's the truth, but you're it's getting super glamorous side yeah. of this whole brewing life. Right? I walk into in the in the in sorting early sorting through boxes of nectarines to find which ones are at the right ripeness in so early, that you can process them and add them to a tank. In early June, when the California apricots hit, like city, uh, Whole Foods, yeah, I start shaking because like I just know that ours are coming soon, and it's like <laughs> I'll never eat. I don't eat apricots anymore. I don't eat peaches at home anymore. <laughs> I eat I eat a lot of apples because we don't make any beers with apples. But uh, this is fruit trauma. Yeah, huh? it is. It is truly. Is. Like it's it's, bad memories yeah, now. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but you know, you make, you get a product by working with a grower that it's a generational grower. You've, you've, you've learned, you've got contact with their mom and now you're working with, with the, with the mom's children. You hear how your purchase is affecting their business, their family. You're paying a premium for it, obviously. Um, and you hope your customer can get as excited about it as you are. And, um, you're getting a different product than if you just go, if you buy a puree or a flavoring and I don't care, you could make a great product with those, but it's different. And that's what we, how we want to make beers. We can, we can save a lot of money if we, if we switch to those ways, just getting a 55 gallon drum on demand, um, never knowing where it came from. But for us, this is the way that we really want to make beer. And fortunately we're able to. So it also uh, kind of speaks to the, you know, um, the idea that consistency pure consistency isn't the goal but finding interesting character and those flashes of brilliance among all of these you know becomes a really interesting piece that you'll occasionally get batches of fruit that are just something else entirely than you know everything is great everything is very good but then occasionally you just find that sublime utterly perfect expression of what you think this is going to be and uh you know and then it becomes that thing that is creatively satisfying for you and also gets exciting for a customer you know because they know what to expect they know what to expect good and then they get blown away by by what they get um and that kind of you know spark is what keeps this interesting you know right yeah absolutely i mean one thing that is keeps it keeps this this job super interesting for me is um trying to not only create new flavors, but try to reproduce some of our, you know, major successes. And so the first batch of apricot fruit stand we did was in uh, 2015, I think. And that got, um, it was like a one or two barrel blend and it got a lot of, uh, or no, that was a two or three barrel blend and it got a lot of, um, hype around it, I think. 
And looking back at that, what happened was we got a lot of apricots and we picked, we processed them when they were super young. They, I mean, some of them were green, they were hard to open. And one of them, a different grower saw the picture I posted and saying, hey, we got apricots. And he was like, wow, those don't look very good. Can I bring you some good ones? And I was like, absolutely you can. And they, uh, we didn't have any room in that fermenter. So we had to, we put as many in there as we could and then we just juiced a bunch of them. And so the, from a fruit stand level, which at the time was probably one to one and a half pounds per gallon, I mean that we couldn't dilute it, uh, excuse me, not dilute, we couldn't blend it to the level of fruit that we wanted. Um, so, or else it wouldn't taste like apricots. So that was actually probably more like two to two and a half um, pounds per gallon, but it was a fruit stand beer still. So people really liked that. Why did they like it? Because there was underripe apricots in it, maybe. And so, um, but I'm never going to put underripe apricots on a beer again. So, you, we look at different acid levels, like, like we talked about. We look at different base beers. Um, we do look at the different growers. And at the what I learned last year was that this grower that um, this is the second year now we've used this organic apricot grower. In 2015, it was her apricots that we got um, from a from a different grower. And so. Um, so we're always learning. That's what keeps it exciting is you're never going to, you never know if you're going to get the fruit you want. You never know if it's going to be the quality you want. Um, you never know if it's actually grown on their property. Or not. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, they're, that's fair. We work with growers who, uh, I, I don't think we've ever had that issue, yeah. but it's absolutely true. Yeah. That you, Oh, you want, you want apricots? Yeah. I'll get you apricots. Yeah. No problem. <laughs> well, are they yours? Well, no, but don't worry about it. Here's, I, I got them for you. What do you, what do you care? <laughs> and so some people would be like, and if it's a hard year, it's like, okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, so it's uh, it's always a challenge, and and that's what keeps it fun. That's my favorite yeah. part of the job is working with growers, talking with growers, visiting them, finding new growers. Um, we found a grower this year that's got uh, a peach variety called Arctic Gem, so we're really excited about that. And uh, I think that's a white peach, so um, we're psyched to try that. We've only got to try white peaches a few times, and so this is a new grower. They've got different sweet cherries that we're using this year. Uh, we're going to get different, uh, some different plums from them and just always finding new growers, new, um, varieties to keep it interesting, keep it interesting for the consumer. We've joked about it. You know, a lot of brewers go up to Yakima for hop selection, but, uh, you've got quite a, a fruit selection uh, going on every year, huh? Yeah, absolutely. For sure. We try to keep a lot of our growers secret. Um, we don't, uh, we'll share other growers when they need, uh, if they got excess variety or yeah. excess, capa- uh, uh, excess inventory, um, we'll kind of help broker. Uh, the fruit forum, and so here's yeah. these. Don't ask where they came from. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> who, who, gonna... should I, who should I invoice? Yeah, invoice me. <laughs> yeah. Where, where, where's the farm? Where yeah. should I pick them up? Oh, we drove to Palisade and got them for you, just so you wouldn't know who they came from. Uh oh, a level of uh, secrecy that again it's, bordering nobody on cares. <laughs> nobody cares. It's all in my head. Let's talk about uh, how you process these fruits. You know, you mentioned processing, but uh, what does that look like for apricots and peaches? What does that look like for cherries? What does that look like for uh, raspberries, blackberries? Yeah, apricots are probably uh, of the of the fruits that you really have to handle. Apricots would be the easiest. Um, we just rip those in half. We take the stone out just because we don't want the stone in there. And peaches and nectarines. Why don't you want the stone? I don't know. People say you don't like that little nutty cyanide character. Too, yeah, right? exactly. Right. There's, there's some science behind it that I don't want to worry about. I don't, I, you know, people talk about how it creates characteristics, flavors. And I think one of the, like Michael Jackson talked about the stone, the, the cherry stone creating like an almond. Right. 
I don't know if that's the case. Maybe it is if you're aging it on the, the, the cherries like some people do or did for months and months. But for us, we're doing, um, we're turning a tank over in three or four weeks in the summer. And so I don't think it's going to have any issue. And it would help me, it helps me sleep better to not have that in there and not worry about it. Sure. So, um, and then for the cherries or for the nectarines and the peaches, we'll quarter those. We'll take the pit out as well. Um, same thing with uh, plums. We usually just have the plums. Um, and then with cherries, sweet cherries, we just throw in whole. Um, sour, sweet, sour cherries, we throw in whole. Sweet cherries, we, um, we have a steep pitter that we, I, uh, I found in upstate New York. And it's from Michigan. It's from like the 1970s. It's this cherry, sweet cherry pitter. So it's built to, pr- to pit sweet cherries. And when we first started, the first year, I think we got like 80 pounds of sweet cherries. And um, we, we crushed those by hand. And then in... Um, the next year, I think we got a couple, like 1,200 pounds of cherries, and I had a five. I, I bought a handheld cherry pitter that did five at a time, <laughs> and I thought that would work. Oof. And I've got nightmares about that. So I was like, "We're never never eating cherries." Yeah. I want I want to do I want to try a lot more cherry varieties to to see what we get from those different varieties. And so to do that, we got to figure out a way to get them broken up. So for the cherry pitter, it was more of a breaking up as opposed to. Um, worried about a flavor issue yeah. and so the because they're a firm fruit obviously they've got shelf life and so we wanted to break that up so that the we could get ex, uh, extract the flavors and uh sugars much quicker um so we bought this cherry pitter at the time it was the most expensive piece of equipment that we'd ever got and we only used it twice a year and so and we still just use it twice a year we've got it upstairs we'll use it twice and then we put it away and so it's eric jokes about like the preventive maintenance is like after 4,000 hours of use, you have to do this and that. And so it's like, well, yeah, we, we never have to do preventive maintenance. We're never going to do that. <laughs> the next owner of this yeah, cherry yeah. pitter is going to have to exactly. worry about that. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever fool is going to take it over after me, they can do deal with that. So, um, so we use that. That's always fun to, to, to do because it's just this big old world machinery that's got a, you know, um, a million different things that could go wrong and, and, uh, and it, it works really well for us. So, um, that's how we do cherries. Berries are pretty easy. Almost all the berries we get are frozen by the time we get them just because the farmers that we're working with are picking in such small quantities that they have to be frozen to, to deliver what we're looking for. And so we just will throw those into a tank, let them defrost. And then, um, we put beer onto it. I'm going to take another sip of this funky blender preserves raspberry while we talk about berries because uh, uh, this is amazing, Thank delicious you. with a uh, an intensity you know, that is really hard to find, uh, but a richness and even a creaminess to it that I wasn't expecting. I think when you berries in particular, blackberries, raspberries have a ton of um, unfermentable sugars in them or sugar alcohol sugars or something like that, that I think contribute to um, mouthfeel and when you put it on a base beer like Funky Blender, which has a low acidity, um, a, a richer body compared to Saison, I think you can get some really cool, um, dense mouthfeel. And uh, um, so this one was really fun because it was a blend of uh, not only Colorado cherry, uh, raspberries. So we, we I mean, I, I handpicked some of these raspberries. I mean, we're talking like maybe two pounds, but, but I was out there, uh, I showed up and they were picking raspberries and they were like, uh, yeah, we, you know how many we've got this many raspberries for you, and I was like, "Can I help you pit? Yeah, pick them?" And they're like, "Sure, come on." And yeah, it was fun. And uh, and then you know t- you you know you're making a relationship with the growers. That's what it's all about. They want to know that you care about their product as much as they do. And um, so this one's got those. It's got some Utah 
uh, raspberries as well. So when we couldn't get enough raspberries um, grown in Colorado, couldn't find enough, even after trying to get people to plant them for us, we found some uh, purple raspberries in northern Utah. So last year we did two trips out to Utah. Um, my guys wanted to kill me because they came back and a thousand, like a few thousand pounds of, of raspberries in six ounce containers. Like you get, <laughs> I was on vacation at the time and, and, uh, and they were just, they were not happy with it, but, uh, it all worked out. So thank you all. Thank you guys for your hard work last year. <laughs> and so we used some of those as well. And then we also did get some California or not some, yeah, some California raspberries, I think as well, just to, just to round out the blend. So this was the, one of the first patches that, um, we went outside of uh, Colorado to get fruit from. I won't tell anybody. Oh, okay. wait a second. Everybody <laughs> listening uh, is going to know. <laughs> Are there any other interesting fruits that you've worked from or, or fruits in Colorado that you're looking forward to uh, to using? You mentioned there's so, uh, something on the horizon there. Yeah, you know, it's different. Tr- always trying Do to find... you use Colorado grapes or are you using grapes from other places? We only use Colorado grapes, yeah. Okay. Every grape beer we've used has been from Colorado. Last year we had a great uh, crop of Merlot grapes. Um, and so those are always really fun to work with. We get those at the end of the year. Uh, so it really just depends on how much tank space we have at the time for how much grape beers we can use and, and really learning what the consumer is looking for from grape beers. I remember one year we did like, I don't know, 12 different grape beers. And after we st- released the fourth or fifth one, it was, you could tell there was fatigue on the, on our consumers, like that's enough grape beers. And so, um, you know, our grapes are po- right. polarizing. You either love wine or you don't. And that probably translate to if you like it in mixed fermentation or not. Yeah. And so, um, we, uh, I remember we saw a friend of a different brewery that was doing a lot of grape beers, and we, we messaged them. We were like, hey, just so you know, <laughs> there's a limit on how many grape <laughs> beers you might be able to do. Hopefully it all works out for you. But, uh, yeah, grape beers are really fun because it's a whole other characteristic. You get more alcohol um, in those fermentations. You get So that gives you different flavors. Um, it's always fun to find different growers who might be growing the same fruits but different varieties. Uh finding i mean we found one grower last year that had uh uh, what's that famous like one of the mead that has uh like a michigan mead that's got some really crazy berry shrams yeah shrams and they do like uh what's one of those weird berry ones they do elderberry i don't know yeah, I think it's elderberry. Okay. Do those stain really well? Yeah, it's elderberry. <laughs> They're all berries? Yeah, sure. I don't know. It's one of those. And so we found it. They had a tree, and we went to okay. pick them, and you have to pick it without, like, with, like, basically nothing on because they'll stain everything. Mm. And so um, we got a little bit of those. I don't think we, we didn't do anything with it because we couldn't get much from the tree. But, you know, you find different things. Like, we, there's gooseberries in Colorado. Right. I've never um, been able to get a good window of when those were ripe to use. Um, so those would be fun to try and, and really where I'm really fascinated with now is, is the different base beers. And so really playing around with, um, different base beers to get different characteristics, different age times to get different flavors that we're looking for, different, uh, quantities of fruit, different usage rates, and then different, um, blending of different fruits together. And that's where I'm excited. I think, um, you know, anybody can get any fruit from around the world now. And so for, for me, I think our specialty lies in the base beers, uh, to, um, get what, uh, what we're looking for. So when we used to have be brewing at different people's, uh, breweries, we would get 18 barrel batches. It's a lot harder to experiment with an 18 barrel batch. If something goes wrong, it's a big hit. Whereas with our seven barrel batch now, we've got a lot more room to play around with, um, trying to, um, get the age of the different base beers up more, um, play with different quantities and different fruit blending to get flavors that we're looking for. We dry hop, um, uh, Eric came up with the idea to dry hop our fruit beers, uh, years ago that turned out to be awesome. We're going to do a lot more of those dry hop beers. 
um, and then vanilla. We played. We did a little bit, um, one blend of vanilla beers this year with apricots, and that turned out really well. Our customers really like those. So naturally, we're going to do a lot more vanilla beers this well, that's, year. That's not expensive. Yeah. No, we use the same, yeah, Madagascar vanilla that everybody else is using. And, well, I, I shouldn't say that, that, um, you know, the like the stout, a lot of the good stout brewers are using, we're using that same vanilla source. So, yeah, it's not cheap, but um, it's getting flavors that, uh, the the customer seems to want so yeah. we're gonna we're gonna try a dry hop uh, vanilla beer this year. Oh, interesting, mind blown. Um, you know, one of the problems when you start conditioning you know beer on fruit is uh, you know again that additional fermentation and some of the you know the weird and funkiness that uh, that could come out of that. Um, you know, and certainly as I'm tasting through sour beers, you can kind of get that. You know, sometimes apricots can, you know, create some weirdy sulfur compounds and um, they can kind of make it into some of those finished beers. How do you manage for some of the strange flavors that uh, fruit can produce in your beer? I think it would come down to the grower. Um, we've had only a hand, I could probably count on one hand how many batches of fruit beers that we've made where the base beer going into it was, you know, to up to our standards was we were really proud of. And then the, f- the resulting beer off the fruit became, uh, was unsaleable for whatever reason. Um, it's happened once with peaches. It's happened once with, uh, with grapes and it's happened once with, um, nectarines. And so, and each of those times, I think you can trace it. I think you, there's there's at least a little bit of evidence that you could trace it back to the grower, um, and it's not. But no, not, not no, not when, with the grape one. It wasn't. You couldn't say it was the grower um, because everything else we got from the same grower that was really good. So sometimes, you know, I people ask me, "Are you worried about the yeast cult that's on the fruit um, affecting the flavor if you're using whole fruit?" Some brewers even go as far to say they don't use whole fruit because of the yeast that's on the fruit. And I just smile and say, okay, like, I think that's really silly because you're getting like the fruit on the yeast. Naturally occurring yeast that may just live on the skins of that fruit that that theoretically could. I mean, at that point you've, you have mostly fermented beer and a strong culture that's totally out competed anything else in there. Strong culture, alcohol, pH, like it's gotta be some really strong yeast to do anything. I'm not going to say it doesn't do anything. I'm sure it does something. But maybe the, when we have these off flavors, maybe that's what's causing it. Mm. Um, maybe uh, you just don't know. And but but you have to be you have to smile when that beer is being poured down the drain. I mean, I've literally we've poured we've been pouring. I remember that when that grape beer was being poured out, it was at a time when we had a lot of work going on in the cellar. I did not want to dump it. I literally stopped uh, the, the the dump tasted out of the 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 dump hose just one last just to confirm (laughs) it wasn't in my head this is really bad sure sure, and then we dumped the rest of it and so you have to be able to do that and not look back and it's when we have new employees and we have people and they're like oh my gosh that's that's you know that's a lot and we're like yeah but that's why we brew so much is because you can so you when those hits do come you can afford to uh, do that i mean you've got to um, you have to only put out the best quality if you're going to charge what we charge for these fruit beers. And, uh, um, I mean, our names on the bottle. I mean, that's a big reason why, uh, after my first trip to Belgium, we wanted, we decided to put our name on the bottle because, you know, you stand by that product. Your name is right on it. My dad's name is on it. My son's name is on that bottle now. And, and, uh, your reputation is all you have in this world. So let's, uh, let's pivot a little bit and talk about, uh, the next step for Casey. Like you mentioned, you're opening up a new tap room in downtown Glenwood Springs and a much more tourist centric area. Um, 
you know, the, the future for you and the first beer that we drank today was uh, a totally clean, hazy IPA because you also really love hazy IPAs. Sure, and yeah. uh, you know, over the years have, have had uh, hazy IPAs uh, on tap uh, produced by brewer friends from around the state and other places uh, just because you enjoy drinking them here and uh, enjoy sharing those as well. Now you get to brew your own. You're also moving into stouts and just did a, an imperial stout with vanilla in it, Stout Tribe. Um, and there's more of those in the tanks right now to kind of prep for that opening. Talk to me a little bit about that move and uh, you know, then how you take this idea of what Casey is about in terms of local ingredients and in terms of this, you know, kind of exacting, caring, you know, but artistic process and apply that, uh, you know, to these other styles of beer. Sure, absolutely. So our, for those that don't know, our business model is rather unique in the sense that um, we're only open a handful of days a month. Uh, you have to have, buy a ticket in advance to come visit us. Um, and we really did that just based on our parking that we have at this facility. It, it became unsustainable when we had one day a month openings um, and many people came and it was just affecting the neighbors. It was affecting me personally. Um, so we had to come up with a way uh, to, to operate sustainably um, for the future. And we did that based on ticketed tours and tastings. And that's definitely been a success um, since we started doing it. But we know that not everybody wants to come and do the same tour and, and uh, do the same tasting all the time. They want to come to um, a different atmosphere. So what we're seeing is we get a lot of new people that are coming up to our tasting room doing the uh, ticketed tours and tasting, which is awesome. So always getting new consumers, educating uh, new customers. But we know we've got those customers who um, are looking for a different experience that they are, than they are, have had many times before. So for about a year and a half, two years now, I've been um, just thinking about what the next step for us would be um, and presumably kind of, you know, seeing what other my friends in the industry were doing, which was if they had a sour facility or a sour focus like we did, kind of what they were, what their next step were. And so um, that seemed to be kind of a more traditional uh, tasting room. Um, and the tasting room model. So that's what we had kind of been looking for. And then earlier this year, um, you know, I had a, almost a complete business plan and we just got um, a random email about uh, a friend of a friend who knew that a downtown Glenwood location was closing, um, kind of pitched myself to the owners of that building, not knowing that they had already knew who we were and a lot about us and they were kind of psyched to have us. We heard that there were three other breweries that were looking at that same space in downtown Glenwood. So super fortunate to uh, be able to have gotten that space. So it's going to be a traditional um, brewery tasting room. It's going to have a little bit of sour beer. Uh, we want to continue to keep the culture of the, you know, the main heart of our, um, of our brand, which is the mixed culture beers here at the, at the barrel room, the barrel cellar. Uh, so we'll have a little bit of sour beer at the downtown facility. We'll have a few bottles available to go. Um, and then that's where we're also going to showcase the majority of our uh, IPAs and stouts that we're going to kind of focus on. We've only got three seven-barrel tanks to, to do this. We're doing everything in, in one tank. So we, we ferment age and, uh, and carb in the same tank. Um, and so we're, it's not like we're going to try to take over Glenwood with you know beer. We're not going to package anything at this point. Um, there's, we're not planning on any fills, growler, crowler fills at this point. Um, and so then we'll get a lot of our friends beer on as well. So, um, so all, a lot of our friends are brewing styles that we can never brew ourselves. In my opinion, that we couldn't brew any better than they are. So like for instance, lager, everybody likes to drink lager. We love, love lager. Can I brew a better Hellas than, than beer stat? No. And so, but they'll, they've said they're hope, hopefully we can get their beer on tap at our facility. So, um, we want to showcase brands and breweries that are not available in the Valley. 
so to kind of be the craft beer destination for people that are coming to Glenwood. So we're right by the train station. We're in the heart of downtown. So we want to cater to not only the um, casual craft beer fan that's looking for a pre or post dinner drink, um, but also the fans that come by um, that are looking to visit Casey if we're not open that, that day or that weekend for, uh, for whatever reason. So um, it's kind of the next step of our business. My sister-in-law is going to be uh, managing the facility. Um, we've got uh, a few other people that are going to be doing it as well. So we're keeping it in the family and um, no ticketed, no tickets required for this one. It's going to be like a standard place. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we're psyched about it. We should be hopefully opening uh, any day now. We're just waiting on state and federal permits. So getting close. Before we get out of here, I want to uh, you know thank uh, send some thanks to this episode's sponsors. G&D Chillers is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. Tavor helps you discover craft beers from around the world. Country Malt Group provides the products and support you need to make inspired beer. And Clarion Lubricants will work with you to create an efficient lubrication program. Troy, if people want to learn more about uh, Casey, where do they uh, where do they find you? We are on our the, our website is caseybrewing.com. We're on Instagram and uh, and Facebook, and we're on Twitter, but I don't think we ever update Twitter. So no Instagram or Facebook. I don't blame you. Yeah. And if uh, you find your way out here to Glenwood Springs, up in the mountains of Colorado, uh, a beautiful barrel cellar with a small tasting room here and a soon to be open uh you know more uh, consumer centric uh open seven days a week or uh, yeah six or seven six, we're six we'll or seven, figure it out yeah. we'll open, figure open it more out. routinely yeah, uh, for sure no tickets tap room here in Glen room. Yeah. No, no tickets necessary and they might even sell you some bottles too. yeah we will we will we'll do that troy casey thanks for joining me on the thank podcast. you so much jamie i really appreciate it yeah. cheers cheers This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.